This is Our Point with Zach and Carmen. Oh my God, I was waiting for you to call me. Well, here I am. Happy Thursday. Ah, happy Thursday. I have a milestone that I need to share with you. <gasps> so excited. I finally finished all of my student loan refinancing. Yay! This is about... You know, like your paperwork to do the refinancing? All the paperwork, yeah. I mean, like, I just finally cleared the paperwork hurdle where they make you... I mean, if anybody's ever refinanced for anything in their life, you know that they make you sign five and, like, provide 17 million documents. But I've been putting this off for, I don't know, six years. years. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, today was the day. Finally happened. Finally did a thing. I am so proud of you. I knew you would what's, be. What's, what's the next step? Tell me, tell me more. I, I don't know. I, am, I hadn't even thought that far. I'm just so <laughs> ramped up and euphoric about getting All right. We're going to continue to celebrate that. We're not going to worry about the next step right now. Yes. Let's, let's not worry about that. Um, so I am continuing to drink some White Claws in celebration of me getting my, my refinancing done. The paperwork well, components. Well done, friend. Well done. And the best part about it, no interaction with humans. I haven't had to talk to a single person yet. So, I mean, it's still going to get worse, but so far, so good. Excellent. You got to keep those highlights um, <laughs> while you can. So, I'm still drinking margaritas because... How many limes did you buy this time? I bought that Costco bag of, I don't know, 1,000? 1,000 so tiny we're, organic limes. We're back to having so many limes. If so many limes. And I finished the bag. Like the, so this is the second Costco bag of limes uh, that I have bought. And I finished the first one. Not one lime went to waste. And while I was at Costco on Sunday, I also bought a case. I don't know. Everything comes in like weird Costco uh, totals. But I also bought some Corona beer because I like it when I get takeout from Jackie's. And I have so many limes. And then I'm, I'm throwing two birthday parties uh, this month. So Party uh, yesterday would have been our friend Franny's birthday. So happy birthday, Franny. She's happy coming birthday. over this weekend. And um, we're going to have a socially distant party. Um, that's also this Saturday is National Rosé Day. Oh, I guess I could have had some rosé. Oh, next episode. <laughs> And then my sister. My sister also has a June birthday, and so we're going to celebrate with her uh, the week after. So probably talk about that next week on the podcast. So I, I, so I had to buy some beer. I had to buy some booze, some beer, some limes. Party I was central. fortunate enough today to not get one but two snaps from your sister today. Ooh, um, I, I don't. I don't feel like I did. <laughs> well, one was compression socks, which thank God for that. So which you love. Um, yeah, I'm just so jealous. And the other was your two nieces hanging out in their pool. And they are just living their best life. I love that they have like a little teeny couch thing that they like sit on in their pool. And I love my siblings, but I don't like them enough. They they like sit next to each other all the time. It's like, are they not sick of each other? <laughs> they have separate tubes. Like, why are you sitting on the couch thing next to each other? They must like genuinely like each other. It's so bizarre. I think they do. I don't know. Um, I did not get a picture of them in the pool today. No, they really well, are. It was living. a story. So I, oh, right. for Fair. processes of feeling cool, I said she sent it to me. All right. Way to go along with the story, Carmen. <laughs> not everything's just, about you. I was just jealous. 
Uh, no, they have the they have a rainbow play system, and they have well, they had like a small pool, and then I saw Sarah inflated like a bigger pool this weekend. So, I mean, they're working hard, being socially distant in Minnesota. You don't have nearly the freedom to do whatever the fuck you want, like we do in South Dakota. So, everyone's just doing the best they best they can. So, well, I mean, South Dakota is just like a whole nother level of crazy. With, I mean, there's no rules. And apparently that's just going to be a thing that you guys continue to do. You all are doing the, the fireworks over there. Uh, yes. At, at that the would Mount have been Rushmore a good article to talk about. Because, because Trump is coming there, right? And yep. they, have and not had, they have not had fireworks over Mount Rushmore for like a decade because they started huge forest fires. Forest fire and the chemicals from the fireworks are polluting the rivers and also debris from the fireworks. Three yes, reasons it, we have not done this, not related weirdly, to global pandemic. People don't understand, but South Dakota is windy, so gigantic fireworks over dry, dry forests start forest Bad. fires. But that didn't stop me today from signing up for the lottery to get a ticket of those 7,500 people to, to see if I can join President Trump for the 4th of July celebration. So they, made, they charge you a dollar. They charge you a dollar to enter the lottery, mm-hmm. but I figured... Small price to pay for America. I, I can't wait. I so, hope you I mean, put in for all six tickets because I assume I did, if you go, I go. I did four because I thought six would, they'd look at me and be like, mm, that's too many to give to one person. But four, they're like, well, we got four tickets. So there was some, there was some strategy behind my ticket allocation. But um, <laughs> if I get it, you're definitely going. But one other thing that's incredibly patriotic Um, that I read in the Patriotic USA Today was titled Best Day Ever, Gamblers Flock to Downtown Las Vegas on First Night of Casino Reopenings by Don Gilbertson. That's right, folks. Vegas is open. And this is coming from somebody, aka myself, who is a huge fan of Vegas. I was there in January, which I've already said. I tried to go the end of March, which was a no-go because it was closed. I already have a vacation scheduled for the last weekend in July and unbe- like blew my mind in the end of August. So like I am always on the Vegas bandwagon, but this article blew my mind with how crazy people were. So Vegas reopened on um, Wednesday, the 5th of not the 5th, the 4th of June is when the casinos opened downtown at midnight and there were flocks of people that showed up to the point where one of the casino owners downtown at the D said that that Wednesday night felt like a typical Saturday and they, with how busy it was and they were unsure of what it was going to be like on Saturday when it actually came. And so it also talked about somebody who was 26 from Colorado and loves to, to gamble but he, his mom's a nurse in Minnesota, and so he wasn't going to go to Vegas unless his mom gave him her blessing, and she gave him and she his did. blessing. Yeah. She's like, you love this, and it's history. So thank God that that nurse didn't get her name published uh, <laughs> in, in the piece. Yeah, uh, but they published they, his whole his, name, including yes. his, middle his middle name, name is name. Elvis. His middle name is Elvis. So 
I mean, I feel like we could do some research, but it just, I mean, it made me shake my head that the mom was like, oh yeah, go for it. You're young and healthy and it's history. You need to go. And so people were going down there to also like get mementos, right? To hopefully get a chunk of the ribbon. They said that Vegas, especially casinos down on um, downtown Vegas, the old part of Vegas, they had like free champagne for people. They had like ribbon cuttings. They treated it like it was a brand new reopening of the casino, like groundbreaking or New Year's Eve. Um, and it sounds absolutely crazy. But on top of that, there some of the processes that they have put in place does not require you in some casinos, because every casino is a little bit different. Some casinos, they take your temperature. Some casinos do not take your temperature when you walk into them. Nowhere is anybody who is gambling required to wear a mask. Casino workers have to wear a mask. Oh, they do, um, or they casino, don't. Em, casino employees are wearing masks, but visitors do not have to wear masks. Um, other hotels were only doing mask and temperature checks for people that actually checked into the hotel component of the casino. But we're talking about these casino floors, which sounds like that are already jam-packed like a typical weekend. If you've been to Vegas on a Saturday and Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know how busy it is. Um, so they also just like threw all caution to the wind. They said that on Wednesday, of course, the hotels were not to capacity. They weren't booked. But they said on Saturday, so three days later, they were prepared to be completely sold out of hotels. So this is just I, it's a the author of the article does a really good job telling a story because you're really kind of engaged with all of these characters that she talks about. And so the Stevens, the guy who owns the D, he bets that the first visitors return to Vegas will probably bring more money than usual uh, to spend on uh, gambling because we've all been staying home, not spending our money. And he says, if you've been able to keep your job and you're still making your income, but you've got nowhere to spend it, you can only do so much damage on DoorDash. Which I yeah. thought was funny because I've saved a ton of money by staying home. <laughs> well, and that that <laughs> casino operator up. in general, like they were doing all kinds of promotions. That casino in general, the D, which they own a couple other casinos on in downtown Vegas, um, they paid for a thousand flights, a thousand flights, not like a thousand people to fly for free, like full planes. So I mean, that can range from like a hundred to two hundred people on each plane to fly f- from free from like a list of a hundred cities to Vegas to help kick off the tourism season again. So they were doing, I mean, I of course checked out whether or not I could get one of the free flights and they were, <laughs> it was or, like the planes from Minneapolis were already um, sold out, but talk about some brilliant marketing that he was uh, doing as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how Vegas continues to handle and navigate this pandemic because but Vegas is a gigantic airport for like Asian tourists, right? Like it's a layover stop. There's direct flights from Vegas to China because um, lots of Chinese folks come to Vegas. So it's going to be interesting, like what happens with international travel and I don't know, but we know their mayor. She's all for them being a yeah, test petri dish. She's not in this article at all. I didn't think they don't really she mention is not. her. She is not. I think that's for her own benefit to <laughs> not be in the Vegas story. Uh, well, that's that's wild. So you said you have a trip planned, what, in August? And July. I have two trips planned. 
just counting down the days. Well, I just can't wait for you to tell us all about it. Yeah. I want to talk about lazy and rude (laughs) people. And the people I'm talking about are the ones who don't return their shopping carts. So here's another, you know me, my middle name is science. So we have another science. Actually, this article is from Scientific American. So it is a science-based article called Why Don't People Return Their Shopping Carts by Crystal DaCosta. And I've been, this is an old article and I've been saving it because it really makes me crazy. Like it, the, they're right there. Just return your shopping cart to the shopping cart corral. Like, don't be so ridiculous. And well, so, so this, this article, because this article that you brought up is from 2017, but mm-hmm. there have been tons of stories over the last few months that I have seen that really have brought back this shopping cart idea as a guidepost to determine whether or not you are a good, like how shitty of a human you are. Yes. There's different mm-hmm. things. So they do say like generally people leave their cart stranded for the following reasons. Either the receptacle is too far away where they've parked their car, which makes them lazy assholes. They have a child whom they do not leave unattended. Questionable. The weather is bad. Again, why do you have to be like that? They have a disability that is prohibitive to easy movement. I'm going to give you that one. Because I had a broken leg and it was crappy. I did, I did not leave my cart just in somebody else's parking spot, but I can see where that would be like a difficult thing. Um, the perception that it's somebody else's job to collect the carts. Uh, and I'm going to segue right now. So I lived in Louisiana briefly in 2004, 2005. And that was the consensus in, Louis- in Louisiana. The town I lived in was Slidell and nobody put their carts back. And it was so fascinating to me because I think generally Midwesterners were fairly polite people. And I would say more times than not, you do not see a lot of shopping carts mm-hmm. littering your store parking lot. Louisiana, it, it was all of them. It was crazy. And so I kept asking people and that was what came back most um, as the answer. It was like, well, it's someone else's job. It's like, yeah, but if that person doesn't get there, now I am inconvenienced as a shopper. And I was like, clearly, you are inconvenienced as a shopper if somebody else doesn't put their car back. I thought that was great. Well, or the car goes flying, like the wind takes in and smashes into your car. It's true. It's very windy here, as we've mm-hmm. discussed on previous podcasts. So uh, it goes through and it talks about the returners, which I would say I am. They feel a sense of obligation. Um, no matter how far away they are or what the weather is like, I always return my cart. Um, the never returners, the convenience returners who like do if it's convenient to them, the pressure returners. So only, which is funny, like people only return their carts if the cart attendant is present or if the adjacent car owner is present. So they don't have an easy avenue for abandoning their carts. Like other people see them being a bad person uh and then there's like people who make a game of it with their kids which i thought was fun so yes i feel like my parents definitely when we got to a certain age made that a fun child task that had to be done along Mm -hmm. with you know pumping gas in the car which you thought was so cool (laughs) but the reality was it wasn't i mean i'm gonna be honest i have i have left my cart and you done the like you look around to see if anybody's watching you i will say that when i have done that I totally know I'm being a shitty human and I'm so lazy and 
it's just going to be a thing. So, I mean, sometimes it happens, but I do feel like we should all strive to return our carts to the cart corrals. But what do you do, well, Carmen, when the cart corral is completely full? What do you do? Uh, well, I don't know that that happens all the time. Well, you should live in a, uh, actual an actual city. city. And there are carts <laughs> where the cart corral is completely packed. Uh, then I'll take it back to the front. Like, I don't normally park so far away that I, if I can't find a cart corral or it's closer to take it to the front, I will take my car to the front. 100%. And that's not I'll, to say that I'm a lazy, shitty human other times because I totally am. I'm not saying I am the best person you'll ever meet because that is I try not and put true. It, I try but and as put far it in like as returning carts, yeah, yeah. I absolutely will. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that I've seen that you brought this up because I've seen these articles recently about just determining what type of a person you are depending on, you know, how, how you handle your shopping cart. The ones I don't understand is where like the shopping the shopping cart is seventeen miles away from the store. Like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But maybe the easy solution is everybody needs to do what Aldi did and make you do the quarter. Because the reality is, I've never seen so many people concerned about 25, 25 <laughs> sets in their entire life. They would like walk past it on the ground, but they'd put their own quarter in there. They will march that cart right back to its little spot. Well, and it's psychology, right? Like that's their quarter, and they back i do have to say and i don't know if it was you and i that were talking about this so recently hy-vee does not i mean i love you hy-vee but you're not doing a great job with your cart now you're not wiping them down there's not a system there's a cart system they have crappy wipes that are either like not available or dry and so they're they're not killing the covid game right now but <laughs> i was able to park next to a cart corral and I carry my own bleach wipes with me because I'm a very concerned citizen. And that was so convenient. I was able to take a bleach wipe out of my own car, wipe down my cart, walk it into the store, and then I felt safe and healthy the whole time. Hmm. Problem solved. Look at you. Problem solved because mm-hmm. Hy-Vee is dropping the ball. Let's go drink more. Okay. It's a good right. idea. Peer pressure. Okay. So now it's time to get to... <laughs> some more serious topics uh there um has been obviously a lot of coverage about what's going on here in minneapolis and the protests that are going on around not only the country but the world right now following george floyd's death but there was an interesting article in the new york times titled how minneapolis one of america's most liberal cities struggles with racism by john elgon and julie bozeman and they write that you know, residents of Minneapolis continue to swell with pride over Minneapolis's sparkling lakes, its glassy downtown, its beautiful green spaces, its bicycle friendly, which it continually draws comparisons to Copenhagen. Hmm. Um, we've also been, you know, the spot of, you know, great liberal politicians from Hubert Humphrey to Walter Mondale to Paul Wellstone. I'm going to throw in Al Franken in there. I know that might be oh. controversial to some folks, but. No, we're a pro Al Franken podcast. I'll yes. we'll own that. We'll own that. But, you know, it continues to talk about this, you know, this large progressive city. And, you know, Minneapolis's city council is made up of 12 Democrats, one member and another member who is a part of the Green Party. We have a Democratic mayor, which we've had a Democratic mayor for 
ever. I couldn't tell you the last Republican mayor of Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, Tim Walls said this again, but, you know, we have an eye break about this, that we continually brag uh, about Minneapolis and the Twin Cities in general, that we have some of the most industries in healthcare. We're top mm-hmm. of the pack for agriculture, finance. We're incredibly proud of the fact that we have more Fortune 500 companies per capita. We talk about how amazing our public parks are, right? Minneapolis ranked number one for the past eight years about its park system, followed by Washington, D.C., and number third was St. Paul. So we we brag about all of these really great progressive policies. I mean, um, so we have this, you know, we, we really like to be progressive, but then the reality is we struggle along racial divides and struggle is not the, the right word. We fail because we, um, but we continue to have some of the most, the largest racial gaps when it comes to education outcomes and healthcare outcomes for black members of our communities. And they, we have lower home ownership rates than white, white families among the largest of any disparities in the country. Um, we have a predominantly white police force, which has been accused of, you know, racial proprietaries and practices for decades. I mean, probably the last 50 years they've had, the Minneapolis Police Department has just had a, a, an abhorrent track record. And this article continues to go on and on. And so one city council member who was an, the first Native American elected to the council talks about that Minneapolis is ridden with this reputation of being incredibly progressive. And that's the vibe that we have done a bunch of like superficial things that, you know, you do things to feel like you've done something big, but we, you know, we've created one of the first civil rights commissions. We created a civil civilian review board for the police, but we give none of these boards and these oversight committees any authority to actually do anything. So this article in the times goes on to talk about basically just doing everything for appearance and there we've never really given any tools to actually fix anything we've just kind of done we've just done surface level cosmetic repairs and you know there was a couple of folks that talk about you know what has drawn them to Minneapolis because it is a huge incoming for folks that want diversity we have great food we have done really well at allowing immigrants to come to the city and there was a man. Yeah, I, the sorry, the st- I just meant that part in the article too. The state took in nearly 110,000 refugees from 1979 to 2018, um, largely the part of work from Lutheran and Catholic social service agencies. Um, so it's yeah. not to say that everything is superficial. Like some, some of it is actually true. No, I think some of it is actually true. And look, there's you know a man, a black man, who moved from St. Louis to Minneapolis because he was incredibly um, excited about the mix of culture, the different foods that we have, you know, some of the best school systems in the country. Um, Unfortunately, that doesn't pertain to certain spots of the city, right? Like South Minneapolis. He also talks about his experience overall of people from Minneapolis that have a wide friend group of folks of different ethnicities. And he said that he grew up in other cities where, you know, the blacks hung out with the blacks and the Hispanics hung out with the Hispanics. And he does feel that Minneapolis and Minnesota in general does a good job of having, you know, a diverse friendship network. So I think my takeaway from this article was that Minneapolis is not, I do not think Minneapolis is an outlier. I think Minneapolis 
is the norm for lots of these great liberal cities that we continually to talk about, like San Francisco and Austin, Texas, and Minneapolis and Denver. I think we think that we are making right steps and we are, you know, we have we are electing people that share our values, but we never actually take the time to do the hard work, the stuff that takes more um, energy and effort than just creating a new commission, but allowing then that commission to go out there and uncover some really ugly truths. And I think we have been, Minneapolis in general has been, you know, they said in the article, it's racism with a smile. And I mean, it kind of seems fitting. And I think a lot of it is, again, you just, everything for me in my life as a white man is pretty great and rosy and you just are immune to actually paying attention and looking and you just gloss things over until you get smacked in the face with the reality that people are facing and you come to find out that we are not as great as we thought we were. Yeah. So I like the, um, it lays out Minneapolis is about 60% white, 20% black, 10% Latino and 6% Asian, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't read that um, recently. Obviously they go on to talk about George Floyd and his death at the hands of the Minneapolis policemen while more policemen well more officers stood there watching where that kind of comes from so you you're in minneapolis but obviously it's the twin cities and they do have a black mayor of saint paul correct have they had the same like they're mostly democratic mayors as well in saint paul yes there's yeah there was one guy that ran as there i think there was one mayor that was an independent recently but Mm -hmm. otherwise they've all been democrats i mean which is also typical of a lot of big cities, especially liberal cities. Um, Sure. But I mean, this article goes on to say that Minneapolis has also, you know, probably within the last five years, tried to make a lot of of changes, right? It talks about 2018, they eliminated single family zoning, which was long seen as a a way to keep black folks in their neighborhoods and not allow them to move forward. Because another huge problem is we are not allowing the same level of home ownership to, for black communities as we are um, for, for whites. It also talks about redlining, of course, and dealing with that in the transportation system. But the city was also the first to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour in 2017, the first major Midwestern city to do so. Um, they also mandated sick leave for workers. You know, Mayor Fry, when he came in, really put a lot of emphasis on affordable housing. Minneapolis has had a long problem with affordable housing. And part of that problem is because the cities have grown so fast. And it is astounding to see how fast Minneapolis is growing, similar to, you know, stories you've heard about Denver growing. Um, It's just, it is an attractive place for people to live. And so as you see this huge influx of people moving um, to the city, housing has not kept up with it. And of course, that means you get rid of housing for poor people and put up nice, big, fancy condos for rich white people. And mm-hmm. so that has been a huge- Young professionals. Uh, yep. A huge push of the mayor. Um, it took until 2018 for you know the district to elect a, a black woman, a Muslim woman um, to Congress. And so, I mean, I do think Minneapolis is clearly um, moving along in the right direction, but the reality is, is it's not fast enough. And we have been too complacent for too long. And there finally was a reckoning. And I hope that this is a huge wake-up call for other liberal cities that like to point their fingers and say that that happens, you know, in Tennessee, doesn't happen in 
liberal Minnesota. And the reality is, is it's in our own backyard and we should also do a little self-reflection. Yes. I agree. Mm. But I also, I also hold it up and I, I lived in what Apple Valley and Roseville. So are those both yep. Minneapolis yep. when I was right out of high school and then I worked for a couple Minnesota companies. And so I too hold Minneapolis, St. Paul as this bastion of liberal um, beaconing me to well, leave South Dakota and join you in pretty purple Minnesota because well, I mean, I think it, you're definitely better think, off than South Dakota. I was going to say, I think, that's the other, goes. I think it's the thing to keep in mind that while Minneapolis definitely has a lot of work to do, I would say Minneapolis at its worst is still better than Sioux Falls. And I would say that we are probably more progressive and have better policies than Fargo. And that does not mean that Minneapolis gets to pat ourselves on the back, but I mean, we're comparing apples well, to oranges. And, and the reality is the George Floyd murder became such a catalyst because it's on camera. So it's not to yes. say that this doesn't happen in Sioux Falls and Fargo and Chicago and everywhere else, but it just happened to be, thank the Lord for cell phone cameras, because that's totally. what's keeping these racist groups, such as police departments, in check in a way that they really haven't been um, previously. And I would like to talk about um, abolishing the police. I think that's a rallying cry that is, is definitely not new. I think it's uh, certainly come back with a force. I think more people are seeing it. And so my article is from Vox. And it's actually by Emily Vanderwerf, who I went to college with at SDSU. Go Jacks! And I'm super excited to share this. It's called The Narrative Power of Abolish the Police. And Emily says it isn't just a policy proposal. It's an idea of what a country could be. And so Emily's such a, a talented writer. And so she goes on and she talks about basically how do we, do we really want to abolish police? Which like, how are we going to catch murderers then if we have no police departments? However, could we use that as a way, like the hyper-militarization hyper of police forces? Do police departments need tanks? No. No, they do not. So um, how do we tell this story in a succinct way that can fit on our protest sign, uh, but actually goes and makes people like you and I or people like my my family and your family like our friends with, which are hyper liberal and some are more so and you know then there's the kids we went to high school with who are probably different but so when you think about abolish the police it's not merely a policy proposal though it is that but it's also if you think about it as the narrative that holds the power to change how people think from that perspective, abolish the police is an objective to rally behind, one that conveys a much more po powerful narrative than if you spell it out and you're like, completely rethink how police departments in the United States are funded and what laws are meant to govern them. Because while that's what we're really talking about, that isn't as uh, pithy a slogan and that's what you need when you're trying to make, when you're trying to make change.
And I think that was one thing my very first campaign um, was against an abortion ban in South Dakota. And we didn't make it about abortion. We made it about government intrusion. And that was a really successful message. And it was, how do you boil this whole nuanced abortion argument down to something fits on a chant, something that fits on your cardboard protest sign, your tag board. And it was no intrusion. And that was something that really struck really well with the libertarians of South Dakota. And so where abolish the police is a slogan that fits into what we're kind of talking about. We need to think about how do we reallocate the money? That's what new, uh, Los Angeles did What last week. The end of last week, they moved $150 yeah, million. Yeah. Dollars. Um, and so they didn't totally get away with the police department in Los Angeles. No, but, I, but they were able they're... to think to them. They were able to restructure and say, like, gosh, do we think that this money could be spent in these communities, not policing these communities, but making these communities better? I mean, I think that that's they're... what we're talking about. I think they're so this is actually going on in Minneapolis as we speak, right? The city council voted the other day, I believe on Sunday, to dismantle the Minneapolis police. And they said they have a veto proof because the mayor has came out and said that he is not for dismantling the police can we take a moment did he is that what he said this weekend when they uh when he was at the the protest that he got booed out of yes so right because there was this woman who was like i have a yes or no question and he was like no yes and i do that yes and i think look here's the reality i mean this goes back to the thing it is really easy to come up with a really fancy splashy slogan and like rally people behind it I don't think that is an effective way to actually govern and make change. Um, and so, I mean, I do think it is hard when you get hit with these yes, no questions about what your solution would be for the police department. Cause I think there is a much different, different reality from what LA did where they defunded, right? Where they moved funds and put it back into social services and took it away from the police budget. Um, there is, it is different to say dismantle the police union or the police office because the reality, what Minneapolis is, you know, there's going to be a bunch of proposals, but what that overall means is it's not that there isn't going to be a police department. They are just going to start from scratch and rebuild it as opposed to trying to change and tweak what we currently have going on, right? Which would be more cumbersome and distrust. So they basically would start from zero police department, rehire people, come up with new practices, new policies, try and make people apply again, do that. And then there's like, abolish the police department and i think that is the crazy that is the crazy thing to say so emily addresses that in her article because she talks about mainstream liberals which i suppose is me um, too often read statements like abolish the police and think it's meant as a singular literal solution rather than a far-fetched goal and it is steeped in and i think you'll appreciate this so the confusion stems from the way that the modern liberal discourse is steeped in an earnest belief that at some point the best policy will win out. And I want that to be the world that I live in. I want the best policy to win. I want the best candidate to win. I want the smartest fucking person in the White House that is running. And uh, she gives an example of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it's much better than the healthcare system that America had in place before it, but obviously still has gigantic holes in its safety net, and um, particularly the current administration. 
isn't particularly inclined to patch those holes. Um, so yes, when you talk about abolish the police, it does seem like a really simplistic, radical idea, but we're working to abolish the police in their current form by taking several well-planned steps to reform the existing justice system. See, but I think like they're like this article and like they're talking about basically simplifying the message, right? So it's a rallying cry and it's easier to get people to decide what you want. But like when you go into what they mean by their like super simplistic, it is incredibly convoluted and messy. And and, like, it's not actually like abolish, like we're going to retool and do, it's like, well, I don't know. I look at this through like a political lens and I think the dumbest thing through a political lens, because I think that is separate than what we need to do to address the systemic racism that people of color are facing in our city. Like, we need to do some radical change. But I just imagine like what is a sub- a suburban voter in Maple Grove thinking when they hear Minneapolis is voting to get rid of the police department. And I mean, I think people, it makes people think that we're crazy. We're absolutely crazy. And I can't say that if I'm looking at it through that lens, that they're wrong. I mean, can you imagine going back to your mom and being like, mom, Sioux Falls is saying we're going to get rid of the complete police department. I bet you Gail would be like, well, guess where I'm not going ever again. And it's not yeah, the- well, the coronavirus hotspot with the most cases in the United States per capita didn't stop her from shopping at JCPenney. No, but I so bet I you can't if you thought it was unruly law. I, you, I do. I think that those people, her. the people that do not agree do not believe coronavirus would 100% be the people that would be freaked out that there's no police department. I don't know. It just seemed really, it just seemed really, it seemed reckless. It seems well, reckless. It, it, it goes to, to me, it feels like the same thing that Democrats always get wrapped up in is that we try so desperately to educate people when all it took for Donald Trump to win was make America great again. Like we are so desperate to be like, no, let me explain to you and my 14-point proposal on how we're going to reallocate funds from the police department, demilitarize them, give them social services training, make sure that we have to, like, I, I mean, obviously, you can't get rid of the police department, but you can do a lot of amazing things with the money that you spend on that is not currently fucking working. Well, sure. I'm not saying that we don't have to obviously but do something you different. You need with to be able. Thing. I mean, like, but that's the thing. You need to be able to tell the story. Yeah, but, but I don't think abolishing the police department does that because I mean, look, there's a difference between seeing that in California. There's something different about saying that in California, where you have Democratic supermajorities and like all of your races are in primaries against each other, and the reality of what Minnesota politics are, where you have, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton won by 1.5 percentage points, like. She won by 40,000 votes. So I think abolish the police department is not a great strategy. Do you think I missed because the point read of the, the article? I do, because I don't think you read the article. I read half of it. I mean, so we can just end with like, sure. Well, tell me what I'm missing. I do think the article was a little more nuanced well, than that. Because well, then I feel like other people are missing it too. So tell me what I'm missing. Well, because she just says, like, abolish the police is part of your message, and it sets a clear moral stake in, um, and like her argument is, it's really an effective political statement. And it's not firmly, like, it's not just stated in a policy position, it's a destination. And so when we talk about abolish the police, it's the abolishing the police is the way they are right now. That's not to say police will no longer exist, and we'll all like self-police ourselves.
But the no, fact I, that we where we are right now is not a solution. It's a statement of intent. Sweeping police reform is our goal. I agree that it is an effective like slogan. I think it effectively knows what you're trying to go. I get it. I just do not think it's it as an effective one to get the end result that you want. Like I agree what you're saying, like symbolizing the message. What's better? I think well, I think defunding the police department makes more sense. I think dismantling the police office makes more sense. Dismantling doesn't sound like you are I mean, abolish is a very strong word. And I'm not saying that it's not effective to get pe- you like your people riled up to get an end goal in sight. I don't think that that is going to help them win their argument. I do think like, I don't know, you've seen it with like Val Demings and Kamala Harris on the news today when they were talking, Joe Biden came out and said that he's against it, abolishing the police department. Because I think abolish has a very definite word, like tone to it. And so I think like dismantling doesn't mean that you're not going to have a police department, which I think is what they're saying, right? Like these people are not, the abolish the police department are not saying that we're not going to have law enforcement officers that come to like a car accident that you're at, right? Like that's not, that's not my takeaway from this article. No, 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 no. It's, it's abolish the, the police department as it is. And I wonder, and I don't think Emily addresses this in her article, but so I was thinking abolish, maybe it's a really specific term as a, as an abolitionist, an abolitionist is someone like who favors the abolition of a practice or institution, and it was used about slavery. And so when you mm-hmm. talk about the abolitionist movement, it was against slavery. And so now maybe abolish the police department is using abolish in a really significant and symbolic way. Yes, from- and they might, but I think that that is dead on arrival that's a a super nuanced argument yeah i think it is dead on arrival with i mean i don't think you're wrong and i think that these people are clearly fired up about it but it goes back to like forcing jacob fry to have a yes no answer that was unfortunate and i mean and it was not it wasn't on the organizer and that woman who was talking to him it was on whoever let jacob fry wander into that crowd and he seemed so unprepared for the fact that they might want to talk to him well, I think that they and what his what his answer would be because I'm he I'm sorry don't put yourself in front of a microphone if you don't know the question they're going to answer that just seemed like really really poor choice on his part and also he looked completely alone I saw no terrified person looking like staff well and that's why I think anywhere near a, him I think that's a plus I think that was he should have been doing that right like he should be like amongst the crowd I mean you saw Mitt Romney walking through the Black Lives Matter protest by himself in the D.C. protest. Sure. And Mitt Romney looked a hell of a lot better than Jacob Fry did. Well, what's Jacob Fry supposed to do? Hide in his, in his building? Well, I, I would have changed his outfit if you put me in charge. I would have had a body guy there or somebody. 90, 90 degrees. You want him, him on a, look in like a suit? He was not alone. Well, I don't I'm sure need he him was. in a suit, but... I'm sure Jacob Fry was wasn't like down there by himself. Or National Guard cap. I mean... He looked alone. He looked alone. He got put in a bad position. He gave the only answer he could. I don't feel like he could have answered any other way. Yeah, 100%. And then that poor fucker was booed out of his own. And he's trying so hard. I just thought it really, it it was really unfortunate for him because I do believe he's trying to do the right thing. I actually think he's doing a great job. Well, I think think all of those protesters actually hurt themselves. I think that the protesters hurt themselves. 
um, in doing that. I think that they Jacob Fry. I think they alienated an ally and somebody that they need to actually make something happen. I mean, I do think Jacob Fry is going to be more guarded. I mean, I think that they they completely hurted an ally. I mean, more power to them if they want to be. I mean, it goes back to a conversation you and I have had a lot of times that it's better to be pure and perfect than to have any kind of incremental change, which this article also talks about that, right? The central left and getting good and compromise and the best policy. Well, I mean, I do think that's how we're going to move forward. Um, it is the reality of, of Joe Biden becoming the nominee, Democratic candidates, more moderates are winning than far left candidates. So, I mean, I think... I think they, I think they hurt themselves. I mean, I know when I watched it as a Jacob Fry supporter, um, and somebody that's for them, when I watched it, I was like, "What are you doing, booing the one person who has been trying his damnedest to, to make things happen?" It just seemed careless. But oh, I did not. I mean, and I, I am a Jacob Fry fan as much as I can be a fan of someone else's mayor. It'd be like um, being in Sioux Falls, and they get. Pat Starr from the city council on like, do you support dismantling the police department? And he says no. And then the whole, cr- the whole crowd fights on Pat Starr. And the reality is, is that there's five other crazies on your city council that deserve more anger and righteous vindication against them than Pat Starr. Like, pick your enemy more smartly. Well, no, I I just saw it as the. I mean, obviously we're having a protest because that that group of people the people that were there are fed up and are looking for and they weren't ready to like have a nuanced conversation with jacob fry about what he can and can't do in the moment they were asking a yes or no question and i i think they did i have a yes or no question for you and let me remind you you're up for re-election it was like oh this is just not gonna go well for him and i don't know no it's not because you know who they're gonna get as mayor you know who's gonna who you know who they're who? gonna get as mayor? Bob Kroll. That's who they're gonna get for mayor. <laughs> I mean, they need to watch themselves because that is a reality. They that do. I would, they do. I, I, I would totally not be agree. surprised and if a Republican mayor, like the next mayor, is a Republican. I would not be surprised. My parting thought is there is a video that is going on um, around social media. Oprah's picked it up. A bunch of other people um, by a, a famous football player that I have no idea who it is. But it is a conversation. He does these YouTube videos, and it's called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. It is the 10 minutes that I watched him talk to me about white privilege, the use of the N-word, and why people are rioting, and how to make things more fair and just was so profound. I learned more listening to him for 10 minutes than I ever did any of the classes I've ever been in. So I would encourage people to search Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Uh, My parting thought is I... So a couple of years ago, I started making a concerted effort to read more books by women of color because I tend to read an uncomfortable amount of John Grisham, James Patterson, Harlan Coben, and other white mystery writers. And now I'm feeling bad that I'm not reading (laughs) white fragility and hood feminism and all of these books to make me a better person. But I just, I can't. I'm still my I, I'm still suffering from the pandemic brain fog, and I just fucking can't. However, I'm still on my women of color track, um, reading regular, everyday books, um, and so if you too 
aren't ready to tackle white fragility and hood feminism, <laughs> but you would like to be a slightly better person incrementally, join me in reading books by Samantha Irby, who is just fantastic. Um, we are approximately the same age. She's an American comedian, author, and blogger. And um, the books that I have read by her are We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, and I have just started Wow No Thank You, and she is hilarious and um, phenomenal, and I highly recommend her. I've also read several romance novels by Jasmine Guillory, and I, I suggest you do too. So don't think because you're not ready to read like a textbook in the summertime as your beach read, I got you. Uh, you can read romance novels by Black authors and still make yourself a better person. Yeah, because get this. Black authors or Black folks can do everything. They can write all kinds of books. They can write all kinds of books. And yeah. we, we, need to, we need to support them. Yes, and, we do. And um, Black romance writers and feminist essay, essay writers are just as important. We can support oh, that's everybody. That's great. Guess I need to go buy some more books. More all right. books. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Our Point. To stay up to date and for links of the articles that we discussed in this podcast, join us on Facebook and Twitter at Our Point Podcast. If you have articles that you would like us to discuss, feel free to tag us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can also email us at ourpointpodcast at gmail.com.